Welcome to How to Be American, a new podcast from the Tenement Museum in New York City. I'm Brendan Murphy from the museum's education department. Here at the museum, we welcome hundreds of thousands of visitors every year for tours of our two historic tenement buildings located on Orchard Street and the vibrant neighborhood that surrounds them. But the stories we share aren't just about the Lower East Side of Manhattan. They're about the nation as a whole. They're about identity, place, and belonging. They're about becoming American. We're going to dig into the stories of families who called Orchard Street home using a variety of primary sources like oral history, government records, and photographs. We'll join this research with the expertise of musicians and politicians, of historians and pizza chefs, to hear how immigrants, migrants, and refugees have all helped shape American culture. Now, it's no secret that our country is incredibly polarized, especially in terms of immigration and what it means to be an American. Sometimes it feels like we're living in an us versus them world. Is it possible for us to come together under a shared American identity? To explore this question, we're gonna ask a bunch of other questions. We're going to begin with a fundamental one. What does it mean to become an American? Welcome back, everyone. A migrant caravan heading from Central America. I never really had to think about that question for myself. Uh, Growing up in a small town in Washington, I never questioned my Americanness. I was born in this country. I learned about immigration in the classroom and, like many of us, was presented with a pretty straightforward narrative about immigration to the United States. The personal stories I did hear were from a hundred years earlier, the joy, fear, and hope people felt as they stepped off the ship and onto Ellis Island. What happened after that was always a little fuzzy. I just kind of assumed now they were Americans, but it's never been that simple. The law isn't a doorway that you simply walk through, more like a big, messy maze, one that you can get trapped inside of. And today we're going to look at what it's meant to be trapped, to live in legal limbo through the experiences of two women who both navigated the American immigration system, but a half century apart. I want to know how people dealt with living in the gray area of hoping and waiting to become officially, legally American. How did they cope? What were their fears? What did becoming American mean to them? Our first story begins in the early 1920s in Palermo, Italy, at a local market. Enter Rosaria Matolo. She was just about five feet tall, and from the photographs, we know she had large brown eyes and a soft smile. She was a teenager and the family's youngest daughter. Imagine her working with her mother, selling eggs from their farm. Presumably, Adolfo Baldizzi was one of their customers. He was a few years older at 25, a strapping young military man. Adolfo fought in World War I. We have a great sepia-toned photo of him in his uniform, newspaper, and cigarette in hand. It's very classy. When he returned from Palermo after the war, he began to plan his next great adventure. According to their daughter Josephine, who the Tenement Museum met in the early 1990s, Adolfo used to tell his children that he fell in love with Rosaria at first sight. He had plans to go to America, and he wanted to bring Rosaria with him as his wife. This was probably an enticing offer to the Matolo family, who were enduring unrest and hardship caused by the rise of fascism and the downturn of the economy in Italy. And like many Italians, they likely saw a life in America as a chance at success and prosperity for their daughter. Rosaria and Adolfo were married on December 16th of 1922. Just 10 months later, Adolfo began his journey to America, leaving Rosaria behind in Palermo. 
Following a common pattern, Adolfo planned to work and save money and then send for his wife to join him once he was settled. Now, on October 20th of 1923, Adolfo boarded the Suffren, the ship that carried him across the Atlantic. I've always wondered about the conversations between Adolfo and Rosaria on the night before he left for the United States. Did she ask him to write her immediately when he landed so she knew he was okay? Was she nervous, exasperated? You know, there's no way for us to know. We do know about the push factors that motivated his journey to America, such as the high taxes and lack of jobs and opportunity. Adolfo would have known many people who left, and maybe he heard stories of work and money in America. A carpenter in Sicily might earn as little as $1.80 a week versus $18 a week in the United States. Adolfo immigrated in 1923. I wanted to know what were, if any, the limits on who could and could not come at that time. So to get some context, I reached out to May Nye. I'm May Nye. I teach history at Columbia University, and I write and think and teach about immigration and citizenship. May told me that at the country's founding, the American government paid more attention to who could be a citizen than who could enter the country as an immigrant. So the Constitution actually doesn't talk about immigration, but it talks about naturalization and it talks about citizenship. And the first law in 1790 said that people could become a citizen if they were free white persons of good moral character. So there's a lot in those few words. This law, the Naturalization Act of 1790, was the first set of rules the government ever made about who could become an American citizen. An immigrant could become a citizen if he were free and white. But who did that leave out? A lot of folks. Native Americans, indentured servants, enslaved people, free blacks, and all women. Now, with some notable changes, that standard remained in place for almost 100 years. In the late 1800s, anti-immigrant sentiment was on the rise in American politics. In 1882... Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first law to explicitly name an ethnic group restricted from immigrating. Then, in 1917, another law was passed, this time to limit immigration from Europe. The 1917 law includes, for the first time, the literacy test, which is really reading a few simple words in one's own native language that are shown to you on flashcards. It's an easy test. I think the um, people in the Senate may have underestimated the level of literacy in Europe. They, they had a lot of stereotypes that all these were peasants that were completely illiterate. So it wasn't true. So the literacy test really didn't do the job that it was intended to do. The laws kept getting tighter. Right around the time Rosaria and Adolfo married in Italy, a complicated quota system was being implemented in the United States. I asked May why. What was the push for restricting European immigration? So there's a kind of a hysteria raised about Europeans now are coming back. They're, re, they're reflooding the country. So they cook up a scheme, which is just to restrict people by setting a number, by setting a quota, which is different than a literacy test, because that's arguably, arguably, not necessarily <laughs> desirable, but it's arguably a way to measure an individual's competency, right? And hence their desirability. So... A quota is a number. So there's an absolute number of how many people can come in and then where they come from becomes a question. From 1921 to 1924, these quotas became tighter and tighter. The fact that Adolfo made it into the quota, that was impressive. Not only was he coming to a new country, but he was competing with hundreds of thousands of others for a spot. 
So under the 1921 Act, there was this spectacle of steamships racing to get into New York Harbor and Boston Harbor on the first day of the month when a new quota would be released for the month. So they were waiting and waiting outside the harbors, right, to enter so they could unload their people first. What happened if you were, say, from Hungary or Italy and you boarded the boat and you'd saved up all your money and you end up getting there on the 5th or the 6th and the quota's already met? Tough luck. (laughs) Tough luck, buddy. Fortunately, Adolfo made it to New York Harbor. Once he arrived in New York, he began saving money and sending it back to Italy to pay for Rosaria's ticket to the United States. Then one day, maybe he heard it from a newsie shouting in the morning or maybe from a radio broadcast, he learned that his wife's journey was about to be even more complicated than he thought. The Johnson-Reed Act had been passed. The Johnson-Reed Act of 1924 was the culmination of those consistently tightening quotas. It's complicated, which is no surprise. In short, the government used a formula. 2% of the foreign-born population here in America from any given country in 1890. That was the quota. So they used a formula that was figuring and um, crunching of data and making up data and (laughs) manipulating of data to come up with what they then called national origin quotas, which is the idea that we should let in a fixed number of people and that number should be distributed to countries based on the proportion of people in the current American population can trace their ancestry back to that country. And they excluded all black people, all Asians, all non-whites. So, gee whiz, the quotas come out looking just like they want them to, with 65% going to Northern and Western Europe, and only 35% going to Eastern and Southern Europe. So Italy, which had been one of the largest sending countries before World War I, now had a quota of 5,800. So these are devastating numbers, and it makes it very difficult then for people to come in. Rosaria was not considered a desirable American. The Johnson-Reed Act had an immeasurable effect on countless families. To put the impact it had into perspective, in 1921... 222,260 Italians were officially allowed to enter the country. But by 1925, the number dropped to only 6,203. Now, separated by an ocean, Adolfo and Rosaria's future together was uncertain. They were married, she had a home in America and the money for her travel, but she was now fighting for a coveted spot with thousands upon thousands of others in the exact same position. And here's where it gets even more complicated. The precise path Rosaria took to arrive in America is remembered differently among members of the Baldizi family. But the consensus is that when she arrived in America in 1925, she arrived using an alias and as an undocumented immigrant. Rosaria told her daughter that at the time she had not realized how drastically this would affect her life in America. Here's what her daughter Josephine told us. The audio we have of Josephine Baldizi is a little rough. Sorry about that. The recording isn't great. My mother came on a ship as an American citizen with somebody's passport. Somebody gave her a passport. I don't know how they finagled that. When she told me, I said, what? I said, what if they talk to you? She said, well, don't they? A lot of people, you know, 
Rosaria and Adolfo first lived in an apartment on Elizabeth Street, a crowded and mostly Italian street on the Lower East Side. Josephine, their daughter, was born in 1926, and Johnny followed shortly after in 1927. A few years after Johnny was born, they moved to the third floor of 97 Orchard Street, a six-story brick tenement building a few blocks away. Adolfo, a skilled carpenter, was initially the family's primary wage earner, but that changed during the Great Depression when it became hard for him to find work. Josephine told us that he was often at home playing games with her and her brother. For them, a welcome treat. For Adolfo, however, every game night might have been a constant reminder of their precarious financial situation. Thankfully, Rosaria was able to find seasonal work in a garment factory, sewing linings into coats. During this time, Rosaria was undocumented, and the possibility of being discovered, the possibility of deportation, that was real. Josephine talked about Rosaria crying at times. She said her mother longed to visit Italy to see her family, but she knew she couldn't risk it. If she returned to Italy, she might never be able to reunite with her family in America. So for people who entered, like, Rosario without proper documentation, um, it all comes down to whether or not you're caught. So certainly somebody in her position I would guess was living with looking over her shoulder half the time, not knowing if her presence was really secure, worried about what would happen to her family if she were found out and deported. So people live with these fears and it's it's a terrible thing because it colors your whole life, right? You don't really know, if, you know, you don't want to stick out. It, you know, it would affect how you would raise your children. You know, to tell them to be extra careful, not to call any attention to themselves. This is an added kind of motivation, maybe to be particularly strict with your children. Um, where you work, where you're willing to go. In her later years, Rosaria didn't have to live with that fear. For a long time, we weren't sure how Rosaria managed to go from being an undocumented immigrant to becoming an American citizen, but somehow she did. As luck would have it, in 2016, a museum staff member made a discovery while browsing through an online database. Uh, the internet can be a magical place. I'm now holding a government document with Rosaria's name on it. It's two-sided. The text boxes were filled in with a typewriter. And as someone who isn't a legal scholar, it isn't the easiest document to understand. Some of the text is just abbreviations. Some of it is crossed out. One aspect of it is very clear, however. It says Rosaria entered the country in 1925, and in 1945, she left, and then came right back. What is this piece of paper? What did it mean for Rosaria? For that, we need to take a step back and meet a woman who advocated for immigrants like Rosaria during this time period. So this is the brainchild of Frances Perkins, who's the Secretary of Labor. Someone who's familiar with the Lower East Side. Yes. And she is, uh, you know, she she came with Roosevelt, basically. She has served in uh, his cabinet when he was governor of New York, and she's a longtime progressive reformer. And I think she's the first woman to have a cabinet position. Just like in our modern time, laws cause reactions. Perkins was building off a movement for immigration reform and responding to mounting criticism from both lawmakers and the American people. So Perkins cooks up this idea 
that they can use some, there's this obscure part of the 1917 law that says people who left the country for on a temporary visit at the time when the law was being passed and when they come back from their visit are denied entry for some technical reason that the Secretary of Labor can suspend their exclusion or deportation and let them in. The rationale behind Perkins' idea was rooted in family unity, keeping families who had been formed here in the United States, who had made lives here, together. Okay, so she takes this idea and she says, well, what if, like, say, Mrs. Baldizzi Baldizzi Mm -hmm. left the country temporarily and then we let her back in? because we consider her exclusion to not really be relevant. The pre-examination process provided a sort of amnesty to European undocumented immigrants. Individuals had to have arrived after 1921, have lived in the United States for at least seven years, and have established families. Rosaria, with a spouse who is an American citizen, Adolfo, naturalized in 1939, could go through a process which allowed her to visit Canada and return to the United States as a legal resident. So this was really creative um, action on the part of the Secretary of Labor. And, um, And she just interpreted a temporary departure from the country to be a voluntary departure, which is a kind of, it's a kind of informal deportation. It's like a self deportation doesn't go in your record as a formal deportation. As part of the process, courts also granted pardons for those who committed small crimes, fraudulent entry among them. Perkins said that the crimes committed, quote, amounted only to violations of law committed many years ago and were counterbalanced by long periods of good moral conduct and useful service in the community, end quote. Her pre-examination process involved at least 17 separate steps. Stacks and stacks of paperwork, years and years of waiting, and countless visits to bureaucratic offices. October 1940, Rosaria registers as an alien. February 1942, Rosaria applies for a certificate of identity. October 1944, Adolfo files an immigrant visa application for his wife. November 1944, Rosaria files an application for pre-examination. January 1945, the visa application is approved. Now we just need to secure permission to enter Canada. April 1945, the Canadians are worried the United States won't let Rosaria back in due to the original fraud, so they hesitate. May 1945, the Immigration and Naturalization Services, or the INS, work to get her special permission to enter Canada. May 1945, the INS explains to Canada that Rosaria is the spouse of a United States citizen, so there is no problem. May 1945, Canada gives permission for her to enter for 10 days. June 1945, before she leaves for Canada, pre-examination takes place in New York City. July 4th, 1945, Rosaria returns from Canada through Roos's Point, New York, as a legal permanent resident. March 1946, Rosaria petitions for naturalization. For eight years, Rosaria worked her way through this process. Between 1935 and 1958, Approximately 58,000 applications for pre-examination were processed, and almost all were accepted. The security this process provided allowed Rosaria to leave and enter the United States without repercussion, something she'd been unable to do since she arrived in 1925. 
Imagine all the things she missed in Italy, births and baptisms, weddings and funerals. Finally, in early 1947, Rosaria had the chance to return to the country of her birth. A few months after her return, in May of 1948, she received the paper that she and so many others coveted, her naturalization papers. She was now an American citizen. This pre-examination program that allowed Rosaria to go to Canada did not change any laws, simply made use of the space between them. Additionally, it was not open to all undocumented people, only to European immigrants like Rosaria. But then just to make sure that Mexicans or Asians don't use the program, they, they refine the law, the, the program, it's not, still not a law, sorry, to say that eligibility is limited to people who are from non-contiguous countries. So who was this program not open to? The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, for all intents and purposes, was still in effect. A series of other restrictions had further expanded the list of individuals banned from entry. That meant all Asian immigrants were ineligible from the waiver program. In 1945, the government added a provision that prevented immigrants from Mexico and the Caribbean from applying to the pre-examination program as well. Rosaria's story is reflective of what was happening in the country in the 1920s and 1930s, but let's be real, the world changes. Who is coming to this country changes. And while in the early 1920s, Italians were arriving in significant numbers, that had tapered off by the 1960s. And though Francis Perkins helped erase the illegality of Rosaria and other European immigrants, making them able to become legally American, that was not possible for everyone, like those who came from Mexico. While immigration trends were changing, Immigrants' hopes, ideals, fears, and rationale for taking these risks remained similar to Rosaria's. In 1965, a new law was passed, the Hart-Seller Act. This law worked to rectify some of the racism embedded in the Johnson-Reed Act, but it wasn't a net positive for all immigrant groups. Right, so the Hart-Seller Act um, did two things. First, it eliminated the national origin quotas as the basis for distributing quotas. And it replaced it with a system where every country has the same uh, maximum number that it can have. It's not really a quota, but it, it functions like a quota. Mm -hmm. So in 1965, the overall ceiling was set at 290,000 a year, and no country could have more than 7% of the total which worked out to 20,000 per country per year. No matter what country it is. Right. So it's at one level a liberal reform because it gets rid of the racist structure of the national origin quotas. Which really fits along with the Civil Rights Act. Exactly. Or the Civil and Rights in fact, Movement. And in fact, its sponsors saw it as a civil rights act for Europeans. They said, this is our civil rights act. Mm -hmm. But it was extremely illiberal and reactionary in that it imposed quotas on the countries of Latin America, which previously had no quotas. Um, so you could say Hartzeller is actually the single most responsible cause for decades of undocumented migration from Mexico. We can bring this story up to today because the consequences of the Johnson-Reed and Hart-Seller Acts continue to shape the stories of families. Cora Cervantes is part of one of those families. 
My name is Cora Cervantes. I grew up in East LA. I was born in Mexico and I live in New York City now. <laughs> Cora shared her story with the Tenement Museum almost five years ago when she participated in the Your Story, Our Story project. Your Story, Our Story is an online exhibit where people can share their own stories of immigration, migration, and American identity. You can visit the site at yourstory.tenement.org. The site helps us uncover the ties that bind our stories together across time and place. We couldn't help but see the threads that linked Rosaria's story to the story Cora shared of a very special object, her mother's komal. This smooth griddle connects my family to memory and food. I grew up eating warm tortillas that came straight from the comal. I experienced one of my first grown-up moments when my mom allowed me to flip the tortillas on my own for the first time. This comal prepares dishes, including midnight snacks during late family gatherings in the kitchen, like toasted bolillos, small pieces of bread with cajeta, also known as dulce de leche. When I first arrived in the U.S., items like this comal brought me a sense of home. The comal was mailed to my mother in 1989, just a few months after her arrival uh, to the United States. My mother speaks of my grandmother going through various mercados or markets in Toluca, Mexico, looking for the right one, the one that would last our family many meals. Living as an undocumented immigrant creates many barriers, including the inability to go back to your home country in times of family crisis, including loss of family. My mom describes this comal as a connection with her mother and memories of Mexico, like the time when she felt like a grown-up as she made tortillas with her mother. This year, after many delicious meals, we decided to retire the comal, but not without warming up its last set of tortillas at her family's 4th of July carne asada. Like Rosaria, Cora and her family came to America seeking better opportunity. And I'm curious, why did your parents bring you here? Well, my mom said, look, um, Mexico, where she grew up as a woman, was a really difficult space. Um, and she said, I want you to, as a woman, have access and opportunities that you may not have here because of your gender. Um, but also, my brother, he has cerebral palsy. And um, at that time in Mexico, like if you went to a sidewalk, there it wasn't like wheelchair accessible. Like you couldn't get on a bus with on a wheelchair. Like it was just difficult, you know. Just like there were a lot of no's that you experienced being undocumented. Yeah. There are a lot of no's if you have a disability. You know, my brother couldn't go to school. There's a lot of things. So my mom, for her, it was just she wanted the opportunity for us to thrive and live in a different culture. Like for her, the U.S. represented um, more access for women. It represented the idea that we could walk down the street pushing my brother's wheelchair and crossing the street would be possible. You know, um, like the that handicap sign that you see in parking lots are all over the place. Like that meant so much to my parents, like the, that idea of access for my brother. Um, and so they just, they said, I want you both to grow up in a world where you both have access. I want you to grow up in a space, which is so ironic because we were undocumented when we got here. As I get older, it just, now I know why they did it, but it just, it's taken on this whole new meaning of like, um, there's a, someone said something to me a long time ago and it's, they said, no one will ever understand the pressure of being the child of immigrants and living up to the dreams that they have for you. And they made it seem like it was this stressful thing, but to me, it's this like um, infinite well of 
energy and inspiration. You know, the idea that I am my parents' wildest dreams, that that's what I am for them. It's, I just, it brings me so much joy because it really is a testament to their unconditional love. And my dad, he always says, I would cross a million borders for you if that's what it took to give you what I want you to have. Cora moved to Los Angeles when she was seven. She spent much of her childhood not knowing that she was an undocumented immigrant. What did it feel like to have parents in a state of limbo? Well, for many years, we were all in a state of limbo. We were all undocumented. I didn't know for a very long time that I was undocumented. My parents kind of kept it from me up until high school. I didn't know. Um, I just remember in the early 90s, uh, believe it or not, California was a red state and they had a Republican governor. And the, the voters passed this bill called Proposition 187, which is um, probably one of the most anti-immigrant state um, legis- pieces of legislation in the state. It's kind of like the grandfather of a lot of the bills we've seen in other states. It just never dawned on me that I was undocumented until I was in high school. And then it became very real because 9-11 happened and both of my parents lost their jobs because of a verification system that went into place and they couldn't. Um, they didn't have documents to present that showed that they were eligible, you know, to, to work and, you know, live here. It just became very real. Oh, my gosh, we're undocumented. Or they were undocumented. And then shortly after, they were like, oh, um, that FAFSA form that they're having you practice on at school to fill out and that, like, driver's permit, you can't get that because you don't have a Social Security number. And I was like, um, well, can we go to the the office where they hand them out and can we fill out a form? Why haven't we done this? And my parents were just like, we can't do that. There, there isn't a place that we can go to to get this for you. If, the, if there was a place or a way, I promise you, we would move heaven and earth to get it for you, but it's just not an option. And so it really, like overnight, like 2001 for me was like, it went from cans to I'm going to go to college. I can do this. I can do that. To can't. Everything was a can't. I, I was sharing not too long ago that even if you have a headache, like I remember going to Safeway, which is like, you know, a market in California. And I had a really bad headache and I needed extra strength Tylenol. They wouldn't sell it to me because I didn't have a California ID. I had like a Mexican consular ID and they said, we don't accept this in the store. So I wasn't even in a position to do something about a headache <laughs> without a proper document. So it really was a lot of can'ts. I mean, things have shifted, but in many ways they haven't or they've gotten worse. So it's interesting to navigate that and live life undocumented and figure out that gray area between the can't and the can and finding a way to go to school, to go to college, to, you know, work or, you know, live up to the dreams that your parents have for you if they're sacrificing so much. So, yeah, it's a really strange um your life changes. Everything changes overnight when you get your documents in order. And at the same time, some things stay the same. Like you realize, wait, I'm still the same person. I still have the same values, except now I have these nine digits that say something else about me and open this door to this world that I wanted to be a part of, but couldn't. Cora became an American citizen, but that process was long and complicated. Was there anything, I mean, aside from just the process as a whole that was so baffling to you uh, as a part of either your father's experience or your experience 
a moment that was of either particular frustration um, or something that was particularly challenging? Well, I mean, when I went through my process, what was challenging for me was like getting all the documents and um, just I had to talk to my parents about why they brought me to the U.S., what, when they came, because you need a lot of that information. Like you need to talk about when you came in, who your parents are. Like it's just a very uh, comprehensive application that speaks about who you are in this country, right? And so it was really difficult to have conversations because with my parents because they already feel a tremendous amount of pain for placing me in a situation where I was undocumented for so long. Like there were, there were colleges I couldn't go to, there were jobs I couldn't take, there were field trips I couldn't go on. So they felt a lot of guilt. So as I filled out those forms, I just, I felt terrible about the emotional toll it took on my parents because here they were and they continue to really dream amazing things for me and work towards them. And filling out this form really uh, painted, I think, um, an image of them in a way that I would never want them to feel. There's this uh, form where they ask you, like, are you a communist? Are you this? Are you that? And it was weird because it's like, dude, like I got here when I was like seven years old. You know, I go to the movies and I hang out with my friends and my dad loves, you know, watching the Super Bowl. And like there's all these things that like are a part of my life here. And it was weird too. I've never felt so othered, <laughs> you know, through like uh, legal context is when I was feeling that out because it's like you're proving that you belong when it's like I've been here Practically, I always say like I'm made with Mexican parts, but, you know, really manufactured in the U.S. And like I was practically homegrown here, you know, like I went to elementary school here, high school. I went to dances here. I like everything here. So it was so strange to fill out those forms um, for myself. And then later for my dad, like one of the documents, you have to prove that they're your relative. So I had to prove that this person was my dad. (laughs) You know what I mean? So... Um, think I have my birth certificate, but it's so bizarre. Like you have, there's just, you know, um, there's like, I think people think it's like this very easy and accessible process, but it isn't. There are so many forms, so many questions and it's a really serious document, you know, like you can't afford to mess up. And I mean, now recently there's changes where before if you were missing a document or something, they would mail it back to you and you can, you know, submit more evidence or whatever the case may be. But there are incidents where you now they're like, we, we were denied it. You have to reapply. So you have to pay for everything all over again. So that, that you can't afford to mess up. And so I think even then, as we were navigating this, we started doing this um, early this year. Um, it, it was really like tense, like everything. I, like I checked every document like five times and then the attorney checked it. And then I was like, well, let me see it one more time. You know, just, I wanted everything to go as smoothly as possible because I didn't want to risk something not working out and then placing my, like now my dad's been highlighted. Now they know he's here and I can't afford for it not to go well. In what context do you feel most American today? I feel most American every day now, but it took me a while to own that identity. It it was something like that I craved, but I felt like I couldn't have. Um, It just felt so 
inaccessible. Like every time I would try to claim it, I would see watch the news and it would be like, you know, these terrible Mexicans doing these terrible things, you know, drug dealers and rapists. And it was just like, oh my gosh, it that's not who we are. And it's like, not only am I that, but I'm I'm I always say Mexican American because, you know, Fourth of July, my family has a carne asada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I always say you'll never meet more patriotic people than immigrants. Like my parents, like it's just an explosion of like U.S. flags and like the works whenever we have a 4th of July thing. And I'm like, I just wish some of these people that see us as foreigners would just step into our carne asada for the 4th of July. One, they would love the food. (laughs) Two, they would see that we have so much pride and we're so invested in making our community the best it could possibly be. And I think it was that as I got older, like, you know what actually really blew my mind when I was um, getting my citizenship? I was taking the oath, right? And um, they have everyone stand up. And I did it in Los Angeles with 4,000 other people from all over the world that were becoming citizens. And my parents came and we all dressed up. My dad and my mom were so cute. My dad put on a blue suit and my mom put on like a little red dress outfit. <laughs> it was like, I was like, you're being so extra right now. <laughs> but in the best way possible. And they were, the, it just meant so much for our family. But I remember standing there and I got to go all the way in the front. So I remember looking back as everybody raised their hand to take the oath. And I just like, it, looking back at everyone and I was just like overcome with emotion like because I knew we all had different journeys and stories but we were all standing at the LA Convention Center ready to take our oath and say that this was our country but it was so strange because this has been my country you know and then at that time President Obama came on they had like a video of like welcome to the United States and it's like I've been here since I was seven thanks for the welcome Uh, but you know And, you know, he says, welcome, this is your country. And, you know, part of me was like, yes, this is my country. But it was also like, this has been my country. You know, I've, you know, when I helped in my community, when we go to church, when we, when I went to school and I, you know, stood up for the Pledge of Allegiance in second grade, when, you know, like my parents do so much volunteer work and they have so much investment in our community. It's like, because it's our home. So it was weird for someone to welcome us when it's like, we've already, we've been here and this has been our home. While Rosaria's story challenges long-held ideas about how past immigrants navigated our complicated system, Cora's reminded me that our friends and neighbors might still be stuck within that same system. Their family's reasoning for coming to the United States is so similar. Their journeys toward becoming American were shaped by laws that define them as undesirable and narratives that labeled them as criminal. Those laws shifted and changed, sometimes almost overnight, leaving them and their families in a surprising state of uncertainty, afraid of what would happen if their status was discovered, all the while waiting for a pathway to appear, concerned that the pathway in front of them might suddenly disappear. What strikes me the most is their shared and sincere desire to live in the United States, their sincere desire to be American, the risks they took to make that happen for their families and their children and their futures. Something I was reminded of while speaking to May and Cora is that sometimes we take for granted the fact that many of us were born here. We have the benefit of legally being American by default. We don't have to work for it. By sharing the stories of these two incredible women, we can take a moment and remember those of us who fought and continue to fight to be a part of American society. 
Thanks for joining us on the first episode of How to Be American. If you like this episode of How to Be American, you can subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, check out the podcast page on our website at tenement.org. There you'll find additional materials about each episode, like photographs, links, and copies of the documents that we reference. Join us next time as we take a deep dive into the history of one of America's most beloved and hotly debated immigrant origin foods, pizza. How to Be American is a podcast created by the Tenement Museum. This episode was produced by Max Savage-Levinson. Craig Keppen is our editor and composer. Special thanks to May Nye, Cora Cervantes, and Pineapple Street Media in Brooklyn, New York. From the Tenement Museum, I'm Brendan Murphy. Thanks for listening.